This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Good evening. I'm Susan Marquis, Dean of the Pardee RAND Graduate School and RAND's Vice President for Emerging Policy Research and Methods. I'll be the moderator of tonight's discussion on The Changing Face of America's Front Lines, Women in Special Operations and Combat Roles. Let me now introduce our panelists. Gail Sesmak-Limon is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and a journalist who writes about national security and foreign policy issues. She recently wrote the New York Times bestseller, Ashley's War, The Untold Story of a Team of Women Soldiers on the Special Ops Battlefield. John Winkler is a senior behavioral scientist at RAND and director of the Forces and Resources Policy Center of the RAND National Security Research Division. He has developed and supervised many highly regarded studies and analyses related to defense manpower, training, and reserve affairs. From 2000 to 2009, he served in the Defense Department as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Manpower and Personnel, and then as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Reserve Affairs. Well, first of all, thank you. Um, both Susan and John are such incredible company to keep, and I am delighted to be here and to be with all of you. Uh, I went to Susan early on when I just had pages that had been printed out of my often malfunctioning printer at my home, uh, and I said, would you read this? Because she wrote this tremendous book about how Special Operations Command was created, and obviously John is not only <laughs> experienced it firsthand, but helped shape uh, so much of the readiness conversation that we're having. So thank you. Um, I stumbled across this story. And what Ashley's War is, in my view, is a slice of history we just didn't know about an all-women team recruited by special operations for the battlefield in Afghanistan in 2011, while the combat ban was very much uh, in place. And these young women were recruited for ranger missions and SEAL missions, so not the kind of hearts and minds stuff that we're so often um, thinking about when we think of what women have been doing on the battlefield. These women were seeing the kind of combat experienced by less than 5% of the entire United States military, and they did it because what happened was special operations needed them. And in early 2011, they put out this poster that captured the imagination of this incredible all-star team of young women that said female soldiers become part of history, join special operations on the battlefield in Afghanistan, and exactly who you would think would answer that poster answered that poster. So a group of some of the most fit, most fierce, incredibly funny uh, people with the sort of gallows humor that you find in a lot of uh, circles where special operations is a way of life. And women who, as I was have written about and did this TED talk about, sort of embraced this and. So they were incredibly fierce and also very feminine because they had to be able to show in the heat of battle that they were women. In the heat of a nighttime raid, they would board the helicopter in the middle of the night alongside rangers. They would 
go in whatever terrain was required, right, for kilometers after kilometers in the dark with night vision, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they would get to the target compound. The rangers would do their work. They would talk to women, and they would be gathering the kind of information and intel that made a difference and that saved lives and that helped accomplish missions, you know, night in mm-hmm. and night out. And they were doing it with about six weeks of training versus what you were talking about on, in the Ranger uh, and SEAL and other special operation teams, communities. And I think for these young women, it was an incredible privilege. And it was a life-changing experience to be part of this team that started as teammates, became friends, and really ended as family. And Ashley's War is a chronicling of their journal at a time when officially women weren't there. Well, I think it's a great story how you even came upon because yeah. no one knew these teams. They were yeah. called uh, cultural support teams, right. and which was <laughs> right, which is an interesting idea for groups right. of women who fast rope out of a helicopter <laughs> into a village. Right. But nonetheless, they were called cultural support team. We'll talk about where why they have that yeah. name in just a moment. But ha- no one knew about them. And yet you found you found out about them almost by accident. C- completely. I mean, it was absolutely the case of reporter's dumb luck. I mean, I was hosting an event on women in combat. And quite honestly, women in combat is a combination of words that makes your eyes glaze over. What does that mean, <laughs> women in combat? You know, it was not something I was really keen to know more of. But if you tell me about soldiers going to war, well, then I'm interested, right? So um, I was hosting an event on women in combat, and this Marine, former Marine, said to me, well, you know, that's just like that story of Lieutenant Ashley White and those all-women teams who were on ranger raids. And I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) This was 2012. And my mother-in-law is from Texas, and she has she always says, "Bless your heart," when you don't know anything about what it is that she, you're talking about. And <laughs> that was the expression that this Marine said to me when I said, "Well, what about the combat ban?" I said, "How is that even possible? What were those What were those women doing on rates?" And she looked at me with exactly that expression and said, "Just look into it. You'll figure it out." And that was, for me, the moment, because I wrote down, Lieutenant Ashley White, I wrote down, you know, cultural support team, question mark, question mark. And I went back and started, I just went online and started looking for the story. You could see there was sort of a Hearts and Minds website that was set up by Special Operations. And there was also a little bit about First Lieutenant Ashley White. But nothing that was actually telling you what anybody had actually done out there. And so... Um, after about three months of sitting on it, I just got online and I found the phone number for some of the folks involved. And I called and I said, you don't know me, but here's my name, here's the books, here's everything I've ever written, and here's my background. I can give you names of people if you want to call them, but I'd really like to come and ask you some questions. And you had a sort of pause in the line, and then um, Ashley White's mom said, I was waiting for somebody to call. Well, before we talk a little bit more about some of the current issues and uh, what you've learned about uh, the effectiveness of these women, let's, John, provide a little bit more context. I mean, women are not new in the military. They've been in the military, the U.S. military, since World War II. I think there were 250,000 or something along those lines in in World War II. Um, Can you give us a brief summary of 
of women in the military and when they started to change their roles a bit from being well, more sure. of a support unit? Of course, we could go well back before World War II to talk about women's involvement in the U.S. military or others for that matter. But if we start with World War II, there were, as you noted, 350,000 women who were largely auxiliaries. My mother-in-law was a, was a Marine auxiliary member during World War II. Uh, and after the war, uh, after a couple of years, uh, their, their role was formalized. Uh, they were, they were in, integrated, but as women, but their numbers were limited to about 2%. Uh, and and that, that's how it was for, for, for quite a few years. Things started to pick up and change with the advent of the all-volunteer force in, in uh, 1973. Of course, that changed a lot of things about our military, you know, up and down and through and through in terms of who served and characteristics, the characteristics of the people in it. So a little after that, things started opening up for women. And I think it was 1976, the first uh, women were accepted at the military academies. Uh, they were f formally integrated by, by President Carter, mm -hmm. I believe, 1979 or so. And there again, it sort, still sort of stayed at a, you know, a relatively low level. But where things really started to change was during and after the first Persian Gulf War. Going into the first per Persian Gulf War, there were some rules that limited women's service. Uh, they were basically called the risk rule. And it basically said you couldn't serve in a job or you couldn't serve in a, in a unit if the risk of your being exposed to hostile fire was that equal to that of a combat unit. So you couldn't be in a combat unit, couldn't be in a combat support unit, transportation company, for example, if the risk was you could get shot at. But as you may remember the stories of the first Persian Gulf War, if you may remember the, the, uh, the, the Army Reserve uh, Quartermaster Company from Pennsylvania, they got hit by a scud attack. And I think 28 people, if I remember right, died in that, and s several of them were women. Yeah. And women began to do, do other actions in that war. I think they began to fly some combat missions during, during that war. And so after the war, people realized that the risk rule was really pretty foolish. And so what, what they then mo moved into was, was a different rule, which just basically says you can't be in a frontline combat unit or a small unit in combat, or you can't be in certain positions. Uh, 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 for example, if you're an infantry, uh, you have an inf infantry skill, you can't pretty much uh, excuse me, if you were a supply officer, you couldn't still be, be affiliated with or associated with, with, a, uh, with a combat unit. Again, that, that's where we stayed for a while, but then after 9-11, another revolution. You know, again, this story being really a prime example. And so things have really accelerated. And since like 2011, the, the National Defense Authorization Act called for a review of women's conditions of service. In 2013, uh, Secretary Panetta basically said, we're done with this. You know, we're going to open up all these jobs to women no matter what they are. And they basically gave the services two years to establish what were called gender-neutral occupational standards which would guide the selection and admission of women into, into jobs that were formerly prohibited from holding. And they also said that by 2016, if you have reason service to request an exemption, for example, if the Marine Corps doesn't want women in the infantry, you have to prove by then, or you have to come forward with your request for an exemption by January 2016. Well, it's October 2015, so things are going to start to get interesting in the next few months. <laughs> Because as you can see already, as you read the paper, there's already some verbal wrangling going on about whether some uh, services are going to request exemptions. Well, and it's looking now as though uh, the Army and the Navy and the Air Force may not ask for any exemptions. The Marine Corps, well, I've already had several questions uh, when we were uh, chatting earlier. So everyone's read about the Marines and, and uh, their concerns and the study they uh, commissioned. Um, the very fact that we're holding this discussion is fascinating. Um, 
because something changed, something changed with uh, the, current, the current Iraq war and the Afghanistan conflict um, that was different, that changed the role of everyone involved, uh, but particularly women. What is the nature of uh, this con- these conflicts? Why is it so different from before? Gail, do you have an idea? Well, I mean, I think the nature of the wars we're fighting is changing, and so are the people who are fighting them. I mean, this was not a social program. This was a program because there was a security gap on the battlefield. In the most conservative and traditional parts of Afghanistan, where the insurgency was strongest, there was no way, culturally, that women were going to be able to talk to male soldiers. So Afghan women, and everything they knew, everything they saw, everything they understood about their communities was being left behind because American male soldiers could not speak to them for cultural reasons. They could only talk to, uh, they would only talk to men in their family or men who were related by blood or by or birth, by blood or marriage. And so the reason why these teams were needed was because there was a security issue, which meant you couldn't clear rooms of weapons or explosives that had women in them because you couldn't enter them. And you, that everything women saw and knew and understood was left unknown. And Admiral Olson, who was the first Navy SEAL to lead Special Operations Command, had a distinct view in this 2010 that we will never kill our way to the end of this war. We will need more knowledge. Point blank. And if you want to get more knowledge and you want to access half the population, you needed women to be out there. So this was never about a social program or political issue. This was always about purpose and patriotism and filling a security gap that was threatening the well-being and the mission of American soldiers in uniform and the Afghans who were at that point transitioning to taking the lead in the Afghan war. Well, I'm going to pick up on that point. As I recall uh, in, in the book, um, so Admiral Olson had this idea. Yeah. He knew that women uh, would be needed, that we had this half the population we weren't talking yeah. to, and so we were missing quite a bit of intelligence. Um, in fact, he did not direct it from on high. How did this request for these teams come about? Yeah, I'm only laughing because Admiral Olson's very understated, and he said, I had the distinct impression that people were just waiting for the next special operations commander to enter. Uh, when, <laughs> when I brought that idea up. And, uh, you know, because he had this view of the yin and yang of warfare and that there was too much of a shift to the hard mm-hmm. skills. And I know we have several who are in uniform now and several who have been in uniform among us tonight. And I want to give a special welcome, uh, to all those who served. And so that was Admiral Olson's view, but there was a lot of bureaucratic inertia to overcome. And it was not until the spring of 2010 when Admiral McRaven, who was then leading Joint Special Operations Command, put in a request for forces from the field, uh, that things actually started to move. You had Admiral Olson's idea, Admiral McRaven's request, and then you set off the bureaucratic machinery that became the recruiting poster that led to Ashley White and this, you know, remarkable team of young women onto the battlefield. Well, Admiral McRaven specifically requested women. That's right. So it's and not just forces, it was, no, that's it was right. women. That's right. He wanted to, he said that there was a need, a security need for women to be out there on ranger missions for, uh, to fill the security gap which existed, which is that half the population and everything it knew and saw and understood remained out of reach to his men. Well, John, was it just the contributions and valor of these uh, women on the culture, these soldiers and oh, the cultural no. support teams? Or what are the other factors at play? Well, there are a lot of other factors yeah. at play. I mean, the CSTs are a very obvious example, but I mean, let's, let's go and back. And a small one. And a small one, but yeah. let's just go back to the, how these trends have been going. Uh, for one thing, at this point in time, we're up to roughly 15% representation of women in the, in the active duty uh, services, about 18% in the reserves. 
uh, the, the nature of, of, of the missions were not tank battles and, yeah. and infantry trench fighting. It's counterinsurgency, counterterrorism. It's using all of the assets. Women are spread throughout, throughout, throughout the force. Uh, they're they're in, in critical enabling jobs all throughout. About 280,000 women were, de- were deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan between uh, t- uh, 2001 and, and the present. So they're all over the place doing all kinds of things mm-hmm. as it is. Mm-hmm. Now, but beyond the war, there, there is a couple of other factors, demographic factors at play. Most people don't know this, but the percentage of military-eligible youth is actually pretty small when you take into account the requirements uh, to, for enlistment. High school graduation, high score on the Armed Forces Qualification Test. I think it's something like 18 or 20%, if I'm not mistaken, of, of, of 18 to 22-year-olds who are even qualified to begin with. Women are an extremely important talent pool if they're qualified to serve. So we actually need women as much as we need men. And then lastly, another thing going on in the more recent decision-making had to do with the results of what was called the Military Leadership Diversity Commission, which was really trying to understand women's representation and in particular why there were so few women at senior ranks. Well, there's a simple reason. Most, most of the time to get to be a senior general, you have to come up through a combat arms type specialty. And if this is closed to women, and if you want to give women the opportunity to move higher into the military structure, that's going to clearly be a major problem. So the MLDC is actually what gave the, the most recent impetus to the Department of Defense conducting its review and looking at all the different positions that were currently open and closed and, 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 and establishing the rationale for why they were open or closed. And one thing I want to pick up on is this had been happening for years, since yeah. the early 2000s. I mean, I get probably one email a week from somebody who said, you know, Green Berets took me out on these missions in, you know, 03. Or um, people who would say, I was a, a, a doctor who the medic didn't want to go out on a mission. This is a story from Afghanistan. And so um, I, they said, hey, would you come with us on patrol? So effectively on patrols throughout all kinds of hostile territory and very happy to be there. I mean, there was no issue. But for her, it was really funny that this was such a novel conversation. And uh, I always write back to people and say, I know, I know. I promise if you read chapter one, you get credit. Um, because there is this history. And I did have a sense um, throughout of the huge responsibility it was uh, to put this history together of the Lioness program in Iraq in 2003, the Marine female engagement teams in 2009, through to the cultural support teams, and all of the people in between. You know, Ashley White's roommate was a, a medic who somebody came into her base or to the hospital she was working at and said, hey, do you want to go get bad guys? And that was her introduction to going on, on counterterrorism missions, right? Was like, you know, and she said, well, I didn't really want to say yes at first, but I knew the only answer was yes, so I went. Uh, and then she was, you know, out on ranger missions within, you know, probably about 10 to 12 days. And very, I mean, loved doing it, loved working with those guys. Um, but, you know, had almost no training in that kind of warfare. Well, and I may have this wrong. I'm picking up on this idea here. Don't you talk about the special burden of, of being a woman in, in this situation. And, and we'll go ahead. Well, and this was from, so there was one young woman named Kimberly who's a military police officer. And she uh, was asked by the SEALs one night to learn to go on this mission, and they didn't want to take her. Um, but the first night that she goes out there, she ends up finding, or maybe it was the second night, but early on, she ends up finding the intel item they were seeking wrapped up in a baby's wet diaper Mm -hmm. uh, because they thought nobody would be in that part of the compound. 
So a couple weeks later, she's on a ranger mission and it's late, late night. They'd been out for hours. They got a little bit lost going up and down a hill in on horrendous terrain. I mean, so steep that you would put your weapon in and would sort of be able to be on hands and knees climbing up and her legs were burning and everybody's just eating it. And she said, you know, I cannot be the one who gets, uh, who falls or who breaks or who is, you know, I'm, I'm not. And as it turned out, um, there was more than one man who was, uh, medevaced out that night because it was incredibly difficult terrain and they're clearing a lot. But in her mind, the only thing she said was, please God, do not let it be the girl who falls out because it won't just be me. It'll be all of us, right? And she felt this huge responsibility to all of these young women who were so uh, ready and, and hungry to be out on these kinds of missions that if she were the one to fall out, it would not be a soldier fell out. It would be the female. Right. The girl did. Out. The girl fell out, yeah. Well, John, you know, Rand's done a lot of work in this area, as I've sort of uh, referenced earlier. Are there lessons we've learned in Rand's research? Uh, are there lessons to take away from integration or um, openness to gays in the military or to African Americans, the integration that uh, we did as a country? Are there lessons there, and what are the differences? Oh, there are definitely lessons. I mean, you can look at the integration of African Americans and, 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 and of gays and lesbians. And there are also some themes that come up that are kind of common uh, in each case. Like, for example, will cohesion go down? Mm -hmm. So you have to understand a number of, of associated issues as you look, look at these things. I mean, one thing that is, that is, is true and in common in all of these three cases that you mentioned is, is there's a story about if, if, if and when the military leadership, the defense leadership decides to make these changes, how to, how to make it happen mm -hmm. in a way that works. And so, and so the common theme there has to do with the role of leadership, the attention to detail needed in terms of implementation, and all of these cases, the, the importance of the establishment of standards of conduct. I mean, this is, people, people always talk about and worry about, you know, are, 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 are issues of bad behavior, sexual misconduct, uh, uh, inappropriate uh, 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 public displays of affection and all that stuff. But when you have rules that prohibit that and you enforce those rules to everybody, okay, these things don't happen. So that's one of the messages. That you, when, when you have these kinds of changes, you have to have, have these rules of social conduct uh, uh, and enforce them to, uh, in order to maintain good order and discipline. Now, the thing about women, blacks, and gays and lesbians is, is they're not all exactly the same. I mean, again, when we look, look at what the issues they face, what, the, what blacks face and what women face is they're an out-group that's it's attempting to join and become part of an in-group. They're visibly different from, from the individuals and in the units that they're, that they're joining up, and they're facing a lot of hostility about this change. And, and so they're kind of similar in that way, women and African Americans in terms of their integration, except women have a little bit worse because there's more of a presumption on the part of the units receiving the women that the women aren't physically able to do the job. That's less true uh, when you're dealing with the African American males that were integrated in 1948. Now with gays and lesbians, it's a kind of an interesting story because it's not that they're joining the unit for the first time. They're already there. You just didn't know it, okay? <laughs> and so the issue there is, is that insofar as the team will trust the person because they know they can do the job, the person's been there and they've been doing the job. Mm -hmm. Now they just learn something new about them, something that might make them uncomfortable, but ultimately in the military, a lot of it boils down to performance. Mm -hmm. Can you do the job? And I think we're, you know, we're, we should also go in this discussion is to really talk about that aspect 
of integrating women in, into these combat jobs. At the end of the day, it's all going to be about them being able to do the job and the jobs being set up with standards that are gender neutral, occupationally fair, that both men and women can equally, equally perform. When the, it was interesting. In our interview, um, General McChrystal was talking about um, this rumor that, you know, not rumor, that the, the wife said that uh, the N in Ranger stands for knowledge. <laughs> when I was asking him whether uh, he was surprised that, that the Ranger Regiment tended to be pretty accepting of the young women who joined, who were in groups of ones and twos at these forward operating bases. And, you know, his point was one that I saw over and over again, which was 10 years into America's longest war, all anybody wanted was people who could contribute. Make a difference on the mission, make a difference, get me home safely, get the job done, I don't care. You know, one retired Ranger First Sergeant uh, who did 13 deployments in the post-9-11 wars, the equivalent of so three or four months special operations deployments, right? the equivalent of better part of four years of war, um, said to me, a job well done stands out. I do not care who is doing it as long as they contribute. And you think, they know what war is, right? These guys have seen enough. They've been continuously deployed since 9-11. And for most of them, I won't say it was all perfect in sunshine and light, but I'm talking about people who were mission-focused. And so there's a story early on in Ashes War where Amber, who, you know, I mean, you could not make up this cast of characters who answered <laughs> the call for this. And I kept looking when I would write down notes like – you know, either I'm getting punked or this is the most amazing story I'll ever tell in my entire life. And um, Amber was this gal who, from Pennsylvania, loved to go shoot targets, didn't know that women couldn't be in infantry, um, signed up, found out they couldn't. So she becomes an intel officer, deploys to – I'm sorry, intel uh, – becomes an intel uh, analyst who deploys to Bosnia, comes back, finishes college, and ends up uh, in this job she hates – it's a promotion. And when she sees the recruiting poster, she's like, that's it. I'm there. Like, There's nobody who's going to keep me out. And so early on uh, in her deployment, she's out one night with rangers, and they keep asking her over the radio, what's the male, what's the female, what's the children count? So she keeps giving it to them, and they keep asking her. And finally, she's like, what the hell's going on? You know, Why do they keep asking me the same thing? And as it turns out, and she doesn't know until they're back, that count was what told them there was a barricaded shooter who was lying in wait for Afghan and American forces because there was a male missing. She had five and they had four, which meant that somebody wasn't where they were supposed to be. And so that plus other pieces of information they were gathering revealed that there was somebody lying in wait for them to, to enter the compound. And it was that kind of thing uh, that made the difference in winning acceptance. That, and, you know, there's a ranger uh, who trained these young women. He, he himself had done 12 deployments, blew out his knee in Iraq, and he's just this amazing character who, if you just listen to him talk and press record, you would have the best show uh, that you could imagine, but it would definitely need a lot of beeps uh, in it. <laughs> and he said, you know, um, the thing that struck you was that they listened and they cared and they had heart. And you saw that when they were out was that the Rangers, you know, he said to them, stay in the gym, prove yourself and be out there. And, you know, these were young women who were doing, you know, what, four hours or whatever, however much CrossFit they could do in a day during training. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as they got there, you have Ashley White, who's this petite five foot two blonde who, you know, the Rangers mm -hmm. that look like a Disneyland greeter who could climb <laughs> ropes using only her arms because she was a former gymnast who was used to carrying her body weight. And so... 
I think people are sometimes surprised that it was actually, could you do the job that was the fundamental question of the deployment? Well, I know we're going to wrap up in just a minute, but I want to get at something. Um, I guess you were, you were recently at West Point, right? Yeah. So the uh, U.S. Military Academy. What was the reaction like there to your book? So moving and incredibly humbling. Uh, I mean, you, you think you can't get more moved and, and feel more responsibility than when you're talking about people in uniform, some who've lost their lives, uh, whose families have trusted you. Um, but what was fascinating was I said, all right, enough asking me questions. You know, how many of you are watching Ranger School? Every hand goes in the air. And you would talk to them. And what was so surprising was how proud they were because – it didn't really surprise me so much, but I think there had been a lot of chatter before two young women graduated from Ranger School who happened to be West Point uh, alums. And once they finished the course, and every and I covered Ranger School that was at Fort Benning and at Eglin Air Force Base in swamps of Florida the first week of August, which I do not recommend to anybody. But um, they, you know, once they made it through that test, and it was clear that Colonel Fivecoat and other people at Fort Benning leadership had worked very hard to maintain the standard, um, there was enormous pride. Mm. And the thing that was fascinating was asking young women who are juniors now and seniors, and of course young men, but they always could, whether they wanted to go into infantry because they may be making history. They may be the first group of West Pointers who are women who could ever choose to what's called branch infantry because women never could before. And now there's this competition, who's going to get the best women, right? Who's going to get the fittest? Who's going to get, you know, the women who could maybe graduate from ranger school or maybe, as, you know, go through uh, special forces assessment and selection if that opens up. So it's a whole new world for these cadets. Well, I think that's a, a great moment to stop. Uh, for those who've done this before, uh, we'll open for questions for the next half hour. Um, in the last week, I believe, it was either in the New York Times or the L.A. Times, there was a story about the suicide rate yes. in, in, uh, in the ranks of the armed forces. And I'm wondering if, if women aren't as involved as men are, is there a difference in, in the, uh, psycho psychologically with, men, with women that that wouldn't affect them? Or what, what is in the, in, the, in the cards for women yeah. in, that, uh, in that horrible arena? Well, I definitely have something to say <laughs> yeah. on this, but I think you've done so much work on this area. Well, we've done a fair amount of work on suicide and suicide mm -hmm. prevention. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't recall really anything that showed that there was that much of a difference. I think the drivers is not so much male-female. Things that like, you know, combat, uh, well, not combat exposure, but in, in, pr problems that pe people are facing psychologically that I don't think really are, are, are associated strictly with sex, so with one's gender. But uh, So in this summer, there was a study actually came out that showed people were shocked by the fact that women service members were having just about the same suicide rate as men. And I was so amazed that people were surprised by that because they have much more in common with the men they're serving alongside than the women in the civilian population in terms of what they've spent the last several years doing, right? And, and I will say there is an enormous imagination gap when it comes to our imagining of what a veteran is and what a hero is. And I did this piece for the LA Times that it was 
because I couldn't take it anymore. I was telling people, oh, you, I said, I'm doing a special operation story. And people said, that's amazing, right? Everybody had seen American Sniper and, you know, everybody, you know, Lone Survivor. That's amazing. And I say, oh, and it has women in it. And then the next question is, <laughs> is it about rape or PTSD? <laughs> and the first time I heard that, I was shocked. And by the fifth time, I was ready for it because the missing story about women in uniform is valor. And they've been out there for years with the American public barely noticing because they are a minority within a minority. And I never set out to tell a story about women in uniform. I set out to tell a war story we hadn't heard about a group of Americans who answered the call to serve. But if I say, imagine a veteran... My guess is nine times out of ten, you don't see a woman. So when they come home and they lose community connection to the fellow service members and they they don't want to ask for services, they very rarely self-identify as veterans, and they have this nation that has no idea what they've done. And there's a story in North Carolina about a woman in the Air Force, I think it was, who parked in a veteran's parking lot only to be scolded by somebody for taking a service member's spot. And that's on all of us. That's on us as a country to catch up not just with the men in uniform, which we absolutely have to do, and what we've asked of people after 14 years of war, but to acknowledge what women have been out there doing all while officially the combat ban may have been in place, but the battlefield realities required their skills. I'm going to jump in for just a second. We're going to do another question, but along the lines of what Gail's saying, I think what's really important, what we're seeing in the papers is a policy discussion. Should we change the policy? Should we get rid of yeah. the, uh, the prohibition against women in combat units, combat positions? And it is a pretty neutral discussion. It's not a neutral discussion. It's not connected to the rea- reality of the battlefield. And a great strength of Gail's book is she's put faces on that. So we know what a woman in a combat position, in a, in a uh, working with a combat unit, looks like. We know how she likes to work out. We know that she likes to put makeup on. We know that uh, what it's like uh, actually dealing, uh, uh, running through uh, the wooded area, that, that scene where they're running through the woods is terrifying. Um, she puts faces to it. And I think for all of us at RAND, when we're starting to have policy discussions, it's very important that we put faces on it right. because otherwise it's very difficult to understand what we're even talking about. And you've done a great job with that. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a testament to the people in, in these pages who trusted me. But it was funny because, um, you know, when one of them came back, she, you have to go to this counseling session. And she comes back and, and the counselor said, well, you know, I'm sure you didn't see any combat, but maybe you were on a forward operating base that took fire. And she was just got up and walked out. Just like, you know, what do I have to say to that? After I did, you know, 77 night raids, you know, in a, in a you know, whatever it was. And that was just in, in one uh, fob. So I think, you know, they didn't want credit. No one spoke to me because they wanted credit or because they thought they did anything other than their job. They spoke to me because they didn't want their teammates forgotten. But understanding who those people are was to me the most important challenge of this book. Why, you know, why do you want to do it? What makes you want to serve in that way? Especially building a plane in mid-flight as they were with it. All right. We've got, we've got another question here up in the front. It sounds like not including women in the stories around combat sounds deliberate. Why do you think that those stories haven't been told 
I mean, what do you think the impact would be? Are people thinking they should never be there? You think it would have stirred a debate that didn't want to have happen at that time? It's interesting. I don't think it was actually deliberate. I think women veterans, for all the reasons we've been talking about, don't feel like they should tell their stories. And the American public doesn't necessarily know if it wants to read any war stories. Look at the ones that have been popular. They're all from the SEAL community, more or less, right? I, I mean, they're, they're stories of, you know, lone, lone survivor, um, American Sniper, a couple Delta Force books. Um, there haven't been, I've read a lot of great ones, but there haven't been that many war stories that have really broken through, written by uh, service members in uniform. And you see this whole movement toward fiction and some great, you know, read. Uh, and then you see uh, Green on Blue and some other terrific books that have been uh, written. But you don't see a lot of stories coming out, and I think women are even more hesitant because they don't want to call attention to themselves. They don't want anybody to think that they think they've done anything special. And honestly, what I found in the reporting of this was nobody would tell me what they'd done. But if I would go and say, well, what happened that night? Their other friend would say, well, that's the night the Rangers gave her an impact award because she found the intel and whatever, whatever. And I was so proud when that award ceremony happened. Could you please comment about other countries' experience with women? We've looked at other countries uh, a couple of times. Um, we, um, we, we did that in our work on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, and, and our allies face very similar issues to us, and our experiences often end up being very similar to each other, particularly when we're looking at countries like Australia and Canada and a lot of Western Europe. I think when you look at the issue of women, what you find from some of the experience of other countries uh, isn't necessarily go go going to make some people happy, because I, I think what the experience shows is that at the end of, end of the day, a lot of, a lot of these, these, these countries actually find that not that many women really want to do this. Okay. And, and some of them have found some issues and problems, that, ones that you can adapt to. Uniforms aren't right, for example. There is some higher rate of injuries in certain cases and so forth. Uh, but to go back to the point about you know, the number of women who are likely to end up in these jobs, I, I think one could reasonably expect that even here there won't be that many that will want to be Absolutely. special forces operators or marine infantry captains. But I, mean, I think the critical issue will ultimately be for the ones that do, can they do the job? Can they meet the standards? And I don't think you can really reasonably say that you can't let them do it if they can meet the standards. John, we've I, we've asked the other the other um, country question. The related one is similar types of traditionally all male jobs. Obviously, firefighters, police officers. Mm -hmm. You've looked at that some as well. Am I correct? Yeah, we've looked at that that as well. Uh, and, and, and you know, uh, analogous institutions is 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 what we what, what we refer to that as. I think in this case, firefighters are probably the most uh, uh, similar uh, to, to what we're talking about. Uh, and, and again, the bottom line in all of this work is, is that these are manageable. Uh, you, there are ways to make it work, uh, but one of the foundation does have to be built on the fact that the performance matters and that people have to observe the fact that the women doing the jobs can do it as well as the men, and, the, and they have to be selected using criteria or standards that are, are valid in terms of the jobs. They can't, you know, if they, and if, again, if they, if they can meet the standards and do the job, then it generally works out. Yeah, on we that point, at Fort Benning. So I went to Fort Benning to cover Ranger School, and the whole piece I wrote probably had the word standard probably 9,700 <laughs> times because it was the only word that came out of anybody's mouth. Women would stop me and say, 
whatever you do, tell all those civilians to stop meddling. We want the same standard. All we want is the chance to meet it. Do not change the standard. Do not make it easier. We are not looking for that. We are simply looking for a chance to meet that standard. Um, and on the uniform piece, you know, that was a part of Ashley's war. So I had a special forces, a tremendous uh, guy who is out now. He read the pages early and he called me up and he said, Gail, I really like the book much more than I expected, which I guess is a compliment. And, uh, and he said, and you, but you have a typo. It says S-P-A-N-X. And I said, it's not a typo. Only half the room will get that joke. That's fake. That's an undergarment that women wear, uh, to make clothing fit better. And it was, what happened was that, um, the uniforms were made for men. And they were small where they should be big and big where they should be small. And so Lane, who was an Iraq War veteran, was so tired of the pants, like, not fitting right that she went on Amazon at her forward operating base in the east of Afghanistan and <laughs> ordered spanks to her base and would wear them uh, every single night. And I, I would joke that it was in this TED talk, it was like the first uh, war story that had spanks in it. But... <laughs> And it was a sign of just of improvising, right? And of the fact that this hadn't been done before and, and people were learning. It was building a plane in mid-flight. It really was. We've got another question back here. Women in combat is a challenge and women in Hollywood is a challenge. <laughs> and I understand that your book has been bought by Reese Witherspoon's production company uh, to make into a movie. And I wonder how we, you would feel about the five-foot-two blonde Reese playing Ashley. <laughs> well, I think Reese Witherspoon can do anything and everything that she wants. I think she's an incredible force. Uh, and it was a real privilege to be able to share this story with people who would bring it to far more people. I would love to say that everyone in America picks up a book. Uh, but we don't live in that world. And in the short attention span theater world that we live in, with it's just getting noisier by the hour, not even by the day. Um, my responsibility was what I promised everybody who trusted me with this story, that if you will trust me with the funniest, the most intimate, and some of the most absolutely heartbreaking moments of your life, I promise you I will do everything I can to get it before everybody in this country. You just have to trust me on that. And and bringing it to people like Fox 2000 and Reese Witherspoon and Bruno Babandreou was, was part of that because it is the most American of media, as much as I would love to say that books uh, reach people in the same way. I think they reach people in a different way. Um, but film is an incredibly powerful storytelling tool that can take people into worlds they've never entered and really make you see them as your best friend. And that's what I wanted the story to do. We've got a question here in the center. Uh, would you please comment on the extensive testing that the Marine Corps recently did where the findings uh, were that women were not up to the standard and, in fact, in the battlefield might cost lives because of the fact that they could not perform up to the standard of the men in uniform? Well, I haven't seen the study, and I need to read it closely in terms of its methodology and its results in, in order to judge it. But I, I would just say that until we do know more about it, I, I wouldn't take as gospel those results just yet. In thinking about how you might design a study like that, for example, they took volunteers, as I understood That's it, cool. both men and women, and a number of the men had previous deployment and combat experience, and none of the women did. 
So it's important to know, for example, whether they factored uh, previous experience and, and deployment uh, uh, and combat exposure into the comparisons or not. Uh, there's also the issue that I believe Secretary Mabus raised in, in the press about whether we're talking about averages of groups uh, or whether at the end some of what we need to be talking about are individuals. And, uh, and on average, women may not perform as well as men on average on certain things, but some women will outperform certain men. And so I think we have to understand that dynamic a bit better, too, before we reach firm conclusions about that particular study. Anything? All right, we've got another question over here. Seems that, uh, you know, the, uh, the anecdotes that have been related are all, of course... Can you point the microphone towards your mouth? There we go. Oh, they okay. all relate to what's happened in the past. We have a current policy of no boots on the ground or much less, in which case the, you know, the brute strength relative to the overall technical ability is much less. So I'm just... Wondering if you just comment on that. One thing I would say, and then uh, to you, is that I actually think that in some ways we're relying on special operations even more now because of the push to have a light footprint. So, you know, the people who are on these kinds of teams, officially this program is closed, but there are people who are deployed right now out of battlefield need. I know four young women who are deployed right now uh, within the special operations community. Uh, and I think what I've seen, at least from covering, and I covered Afghanistan. My first book was about a girl whose business supported her family under the Taliban. So I spent a lot of time among Afghans uh, in the early part of the Afghanistan war. <laughs> we didn't feel it was early then, but now in hindsight, everything looks early. Uh, in, is that, you know, a lot of uh, those skills are even more important. You know, I was recently, when General Odierno was still leading uh, the Army, his strategic studies group has been looking extensively at urban warfare. And in that kind of warfare, they're the first mm -hmm. ones to say that actually um, having a diverse skill set and a diverse force is even more important because it is not tank on tank. It's entering buildings, and, and they don't see that changing anytime soon. But I defer to John on that. Well, I think that's well said. <laughs> <laughs> We've got another question here in the front. Thank you. I just first of all want to say that all three of you have just been terrific, and you've been mesmerizing. <laughs> just wonderful. <laughs> Dr. Winkler, you brought up something just in passing in the very beginning that in the 70s we went, I don't remember the exact year, we went point the from, microphone oh, we went from, in the 70s, we went from an all, an all draft military Correct. to a volunteer military. That's right. And there were many changes. We are living in a very dangerous world today, and we have no idea of when there may come a time when we may need a lot of people. And the forces are pretty much much lower now than they were before. And they may need to get people in very rapidly. If we were to go back to a draft, I would assume that it would definitely include women, that they wouldn't be able to leave them out, that it would be both men and women who would be drafted. Can you comment on the changes, good and bad, and what you would think would come out of this if we landed up in a situation like that? Well, we certainly still have a selective service. We have legal authority to draft men right now. We have full mobilization authority to pull in all members of the National Guard and Reserve, retired military. There, There is a very large population pool if we had to go to a full-up 
kind of mobile, mobilization to draw from. But, but uh, so that's point one. Point, point two, though, is, is that you, one has to imagine what this conflict is going to be like. It's hard to imagine a massive, uh, you know, massive land war involving numerous, I mean, it's a much more, if you will, targeted, focused, technologically oriented kind of a conflict environment we're, we're in. Where, where you know mass isn't necessarily the determining factor. It's the precision. It's the quality of the people, and so forth. So, I, I wouldn't necessarily question that we don't have enough people available if we needed more people already. Not to mention the fact that I think we would, uh, in, in a circumstance where the country were, were threatened that way, have lots of volunteers. Lots of people came came around after 9/11 mm -hmm. out of the woodwork, wanting to get involved in one way or another. Now, the question about the women in the draft is an interesting one, and I think it's ultimately going to be a, kind of a legal one because if women are allowed to 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 go into combat position uh, positions in the future, and it's, it looks pretty much like they probably will, I think it, it, there will be an interesting question now is whether whether they should be subject to registration just like young men are. I don't have an opinion or any research evidence to bring to bear on it, but it, I think it, it is going to be an issue for public deba debate and discussion. Yeah. Oh, okay, we have a question in the middle here. Cohesion. Yeah. <laughs> Hi. Um, Thank you for having us. Um, I'm a good friend of Gail, so I'm not going to ask you a question since I get to ask you whatever I want, whenever I want. Um, I'm very lucky that way. So I'm going to ask John a question. Um, so this is not about women in combat specifically, but it is about a woman who wants to be commander-in-chief, not Hillary. Um, at the Republican debate last week um, at the Reagan Library, Carly Fiorina, you know, had a very good night. And one of the things that she did that she kept doing that I thought was pretty effective, but I have absolutely no idea about the substance of it, was listing the various ways in which the military has been allegedly cut and all the different ways, very specific ways she would build it back up, very specific numbers about fleets, and I would do this and I would move this there, um, which was very impressive, but I have, again, no clue what the substance of it is. And I think that you know the theme in the last two Republican debates has been that our military is at an extremely low and weak point um, and that it's been somehow slashed, which was not at all my understanding. And I'm curious... If you know, if you could do a quick fact check for us around uh, those numbers. Well, numbers have gone down considerably, and, and what we are facing is a, is a potential, you know, further budget cuts and sequestration and shrinkage of the army, uh, and, and and so on. And I think there are many people who do feel that we're our, our readiness is is is, uh, is, 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 is lower or, or or it puts us in a risky posture, and we don't have potentially enough readily available forces to meet all the the demands. Um, I think that viewpoint is, is not surprising to many people who live like me inside the Beltway. Uh, actually, I live just outside the Beltway. But <laughs> no, I, I believe that the facts. I, I, I don't remember all the specifics of that discussion myself, but I, 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 I suspect it's based on a pretty solid foundation. There's a there, it has legitimately in the Obama in the Obama years been kind of cut back. Yeah, and and, and it's where the budget is going next that is particularly worrisome. Well, and sequestration yeah. was non-trivial on this. Remember sequestration. Right. Caught, uh, cut uh, defense and uh, uh, civilian agencies more or less equally. And so it brought everything down. And there wasn't strategy behind where those cuts came from. They just had to come. So um, we have three questions uh, right now, and I think that might bring us to our close, but I'm, we're going to do them in order here. So I've got one right here, and Nancy has one there, and then we've got a gentleman here. So let's start off here with Chris. Um, thank you so much for uh, for all your comments this evening. I was curious what you think the difference is, um, you know, for for 
ages, there, there hasn't been so much of a question of women in harm's way when it comes to espionage and spies. Like there, there are famous women spies as far back as you can remember, and no one you know questions whether or not the Matahari, you know, or something like mm-hmm. that. You know, they, they caught imagination was an issue of a woman being in harm's way. But then you put a uniform yeah. on a woman, and all of a sudden it's like we've never seen somebody hold a gun before that's female. So I'm just curious what you think differs between those two worlds that would would call that out. I, I think it, it part of it is the American imagination. We are more used to seeing those stories. I mean, it yeah. is the power of storytelling. We're more used to seeing those stories. And uh, we haven't, because it is fairly recent in terms of post-9-11 wars, where you've seen women that close to the front line, I think there is a American public has in some ways a gap. But it's interesting. I mean, I did an hour of C-SPAN, which for those of you who need some color... I really recommend it uh, with the question. And, and one of them was, you know, well, what, how is the American public going to react to women in uniform dying? And I said, 160 already have died. Did you notice? Most of us did not. And so there is, I think, much more shock in theory than there is in practice now. Um, and those communities... Uh, are really working hard to make sure their members in uniform, men and women, are not forgotten. And um, I really think that uh, it's up to us as a country to remember what we've asked of people in uniform, men and women, um, and that they've been out there for years. Okay, we have a question here. Yes, thank you. I wanted to ask you about... uh, I wanted to ask you about race, ethnicity, and class. Where do... Has there been any study about class, and not just gender, but the class, ethnicity, and um, what did I say? Class, race. ethnicity, race. and race. Yeah. Well, yes, but I guess in reference to to what issue, there there is a, a great deal of attention paid to the demographic diversity of, of the military, uh, and in terms of representation of the, the, the whites, blacks, Hispanics, and so forth. Um, there, there is, I think, a feeling that the military should look like America, and so you want more representation, and you want to see more representation rise up to uh, to senior ranks. But there is one myth about the military, which is an important myth, which is it essentially draws people who don't have any other options, or that they come from the lower classes because this is the only way for them to pull themselves up by the, the bootstraps. The fact is the young men and women who serve in the armed forces today are among the big, the best and the brightest young people in this country. It's hard to get in. It's very hard to get in. And so from, from that perspective, you know, the military is, it really pre- presents a, 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 a cross-section of society that we should be completely proud of and, and we, should, we should aspire you know, to be around. Well, at one point I want to bring up on that. Um, so I was in Palo Alto at a book party, and somebody said, well, but you know, these people didn't have any other options. And I said, well, um, three were West Pointers. Uh, five were ROTC from college, uh, were also recruited by consulting and every place else competing for the same. Um, that goes to the gap between those who serve and everybody else. There is this divide, there is this perception that if you have no other options, then you join the military, and if you do have options, then you go to McKinsey or Bain, <laughs> right? Within a certain subset, mostly of, of people at think tanks, I say that, as somebody who works at one, right? And, and so I do think that we need to really reality mm-hmm. check that 
almost every one of the young women in these pages is a college graduate. And if they weren't, they are incredibly bright and capable young people who could have done anything that they wanted to. And we do still seem surprised that this is how they would choose to serve. But it is. All right, so we have one final question here. All right. I'm from San Diego and grew up a lot with a lot of military individuals. But um, recently, I met a gentleman that went to went to medical school, came from middle class family in Seattle, Washington, and went to Iraq and spent many years there dealing with uh, the situation. But he came back really maybe disenchanted, I would say, mm-hmm. and started to cross-examine all the motivations behind the war and why it happened and what led to it. So in your in your in your dealings with all the women that you've worked yeah. with, what are those cross examinations? How 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 do they view foreign policy now, post you know immersion? Interesting. I don't think there's a gender divide there. I think that these were all young people who did their job, and they feel very confident in the fact they did their job. How they feel about the mission writ large, I think, changes as they come home and see and see a country that has no idea what they've done, doesn't really know why they've been there, and um, feels really separated from what we've asked people to do. I mean, how many people in this room know people who are deployed right now? Couple, right? But, you know, this is an issue for us as a country because we don't, because it's so easy to divorce ourselves from the reality of these wars, I do not think we engage as a country enough in the conversation about why we are there and what the objectives are and what our civilian leaders are asking of people in uniform. And so it was like, I'm going to say something I wish I could say off the record, but it's going to be in a podcast, so I'm going to say it. Um, <laughs> but so Zero Dark Thirty, people were really upset about uh, what a lot of what they saw in Zero Dark Thirty, understandably. But if you haven't picked up a newspaper in two, since 2001 and seen a lot of these conversations happening, then how is it that a film in that year is going to be the first time you ever engage in that conversation? To me, as a storyteller, I thought that was the most preposterous part mm. of that conversation. Because where were you when all of these stories were coming out for years about what people have been asked and what has been done in America's name. So I really do hope that we as a country actually decide to come off our devices and read about mm-hmm. what it is that we're asking uh, of, of our members of our armed services and what our foreign policy is doing. And I, I'm neither for nor against. Um, I just want people to actually engage with it if we're sending young men and women. And the final thing I'll say is during uh, the sh- government shutdown in 2013, um, I think the story I'm proudest of that's not a book is doing the first story about the government shutdown, um, failing to pay death benefits <laughs> to members of uniform uh, service who were killed in action in Afghanistan. There was a ranger raid that went very, very badly two years to the day from uh, you know one of the stories that's in Ashley's War. And um, those families were not immediately taken care of because the government shutdown meant that those payments were shut off also. And that is shameful. Well, we have a challenge. We need to engage. The fact that you're here is a sign that you're willing to engage and interest in these issues. So I can't thank you enough for coming. I cannot thank Gail and John enough for a great conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I, I... This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, 
visit us online at www.rand.org events.